the incomparable. Number 533, September 2020. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell, and in this episode, we're doing another episode of Old Movie Club. Club. Uh, Old movies on the agenda, and this time it is two movies involving Billy Wilder, 1939's Midnight, which I believe Erica Ensign, who is here, recommended we do in episode 400 of The Incomparable. Is that right, Erica? Uh, that sounds about right. I do remember it was one of those episodes where you said, give me ideas for the yes. future, and I'm going to call that a draft. Mm-hmm. And this was one of my ideas. Yeah. So wait, you only wait 100 plus episodes to do her recommendations, but you wait like 400 for mine? The, uh-huh. p- the pile is shrinking, Steve. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm moving through those ideas <laughs> a at a faster clip now. now. Yeah, indeed. Okay. Uh, now that we're pairing it with, some like it hot from 1959. That pairing suggested by the guy who usually suggests the movies on Old Movie Club, Philip Michaels. Hey, Phil. Hello. Hi. How are you? Great. Great. Let me no, let I'm me not, explain I'm who not I'm not eating. I'm not eating pizza. I'm a professional. God damn it. No. Okay. Uh, also joining <laughs> us, uh, Steve Lutz. Hello. Hello there, Jason. Uh, these movies were very old. Mm, they were. And Tiff Arment. Hi, Tiff. Hey, do we need to have like old voices? Hey. <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like No, our voices too. are young. Oh, we're so young. The mo- only the so movies young. are old. Only they are. the movies are They old. are very black and white. And uh, my child thinks that that's the way people used to look. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Back when the world was in black and white. Although I read a thing that said that, that Billy Wilder decided that... that uh, color wasn't funny and so he just kept making movies in black and white because some like it hottest from 1959 it should probably have been in color but nope it's not it's black and white looks looks old it makes it funnier there's another reason why he uh went with uh black and white for uh for some like it hot it was apparently in color jack lemon and tony curtis look appalling in their gowns so that 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 Uh. was the other reason (laughs) i could i could believe that I could believe that. So um, before we get going and talk about these two movies, um, which are, are, I would say, quite a contrast, even though Billy Wilder is involved with both of them, and they're both kind of wacky comedies, uh, one from 1939 and one from 1959, I think there's one thing about them that couldn't be more different, which is Some Like It Hot is considered uh, one of the great movies. It's been put, you know, preserved. It's on the AFI Top 100. Midnight is available on DVD, but is not available for streaming anywhere. Occasionally will probably turn up on like one of your Turner classic movies or something like that, but that's about it. And so it's really obscure. Um, So I want to go to Erica to start and just have her explain a little bit about like how she found Midnight and why we're watching it. Oh God, I'm, I'm not even sure I remember. It was so long ago. I assume I must have seen it on uh, American Movie Classics or Turner Classic Movies. Uh, in fact, I do have the DVD and it is a Turner Classic Movies DVD. It actually has the intro with Robert Osborne on it, uh, which is just delightful. Um, so I think I was probably in high school at the time and 
I just fell in love with this movie. The first time I watched it, I was just I was tickled pink. I mean, I've I've always liked movies from this era, romantic comedies that are not too screwball and like not slapsticky because I don't like slapstick. It it just it really hit me in the 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 happy place between you know a sort of a, a fairy tale that's a little bit silly with actors that I found that I really enjoyed. I mean, I I had no idea who Claudette Colbert was when I saw this movie for the first time, and I think I did know Don Amici, but I didn't put together that that was the guy who was in like batteries not included and cocoon mm-hmm. um it took me years before i figured that out but i i videotaped this so i had a videotape that had midnight on it and i watched that sucker over and over and over again so i didn't get the dvd until many years later because you're right this movie is weirdly not particularly available which just seems very strange to me uh especially given like the glowing praise that robert osborne was heaping upon it in that uh, intro that I watched yesterday when I rewatched this movie. Um, So I've just always loved it. And every time we do an old movie club, it was just always in the back of my mind. I wish I was talking about Claudette Cabrera doing the thing I love her doing the most. This. Um, And, you know, some of the old movie club movies are from much later than 1939. So for me, I'm always like, that's not old. (laughs) This is old. 1939, maybe the greatest year in cinema history. There were a lot of legendary movies made in 1939 and also Midnight, which a lot of people haven't heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, Phil, what was uh, when I said we're going to do Midnight, Erica said we have to do Midnight. You picked <laughs> Some Like It Hot. What was your thought about that? Oh, God. Um, I hate Erica was his thought. <laughs> well, yes, but that wasn't my immediate thought. Um, <laughs> no, um, I I thought, um, you know, it's... It, <laughs> generally uh uh regarded as you said as a as a as a great comedy a very well-known comedy um uh, billy wilder is always fun for a larf i think i i hadn't actually realized that billy wilder wrote the uh the script on this until after i picked it i believe which was which was uh a bit of uh serendipity ah. um so uh and and i thought it would just be a um a nice contrast into seeing how well comedies from different eras hold up, because uh, as a as 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 the guy who picks a lot of the movies for Old Movie Club, it uh, we don't do a lot of comedy comedy on here because um, uh, comedy doesn't age well. What what you know, you just have to look at stuff from the the seventies or eighties, which doesn't really strike me as particularly old, and you go, that we thought that was funny, huh? Oh boy, and. Um, Whereas uh, people still watch, um, I think, uh, um, some like it hot and think it's it's pretty funny. I had never seen Midnight, so why don't, why don't we see if this uh, uh, nearly 80-year-old, actually more than 80 years old now, 80-year-old mm-hmm. uh, comedy uh, can still bring it. So that's what mm-hmm. I was thinking. Yeah, that's right. Fun, fun fact about a connection between Midnight and Some Like It Hot. Uh, apparently, so so Billy Wilder co-wrote the screenplay for Midnight, but he did not direct it. It was uh, directed by Mitchell Leeson. And Billy Wilder got very angry about some of the changes that Mitchell Leeson were, was making uh, to the story. And apparently that prompted him to start talking to the studio about the possibility of directing his own pictures in the future. So without him being ticked off about Midnight, we maybe never would have had Some Like It Hot. And some of us might think that would have been a better thing. But, you know, for, for others, maybe maybe it worked out great. You will find that it is an early staple of Billy Wilder's um, still a writer career that he usually thought, I could do a better job than this director. <laughs> <laughs> so I had never seen either of these movies. So this was a, an adventure for me in, mm-hmm. in movies that I'd never seen before. 
let's start with midnight, shall we? Sure, why not? Um, and and I, before we get started, I want to point out another thing that these two movies have in common. Uh, they both have uh, the supplier of the gowns credited in the opening credits. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> Almost all of the movies that I love do. <laughs> Miss Colbert's Gowns by Irene. <laughs> That that was very common in the nineteen in the nineteen thirties. Um, mm-hmm. Not as common by nineteen fifty nine, but I sure. think uh, special allowances had to be made to uh, dress Miss uh, Monroe. Miss Monroe, yeah, and Mister Messrs. Curtis and Lemon. So midnight. Um, you know, I don't. I don't know if we want to walk. Uh, well, I'll walk through the plot a little bit, um, I, and I can do this one. Um, Midnight begins with uh, Claudia Colbert getting pulled off a, a train. She's kind of passed out in a train from Monte Carlo to Paris. And uh, she gets pulled off because it's the end of the line. You got to leave, lady. And it's bucketing down rain. And she's at the train station looking out on the least realistic rear projection background <laughs> I have ever seen in any movie. Um, it's the literally like film. It's four guys in front of a screen showing a street in the background and it's just very clear that that's what it is but she has no money so she talks to a taxi driver don amici and uh, tries to convince him uh, at one point to pay that she'll pay him double if he can take her somewhere because she's a, a singer um and uh, if she gets a job she'll pay him double and this leads on a series of unlikely events that uh, sort of chain where they meet cute and uh, then he's interested in her but she legs it out of his cab at one point at which point she enters a social event and and because she's dressed the her only possession to her name essentially is her evening gown and it's the a ticket gorgeous gold dress go, gorgeous dress and and the um and that it's that and her train ticket that she's already used and the her pawn, pawn ticket. ticket for her <laughs> luggage that is back in Monte Carlo but she waltzes right into this society party um and then uh and then basically it, 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 Yes. It is established very quickly that she's a bit of a grifter. Yeah. Small time grifter, but a grifter. Yeah, and she's good she's good at at getting her well, I mean she's she's literally showed up in Paris with nothing and she's like, I can figure this out. I can make my way. She talks to the cab driver and then here she talks her way into society. Uh there's a boring uh piano concert that's going to go on so she leaves but she's been <laughs> spotted played, and, played by what appears to be Bob Hoskins in a fright wig. <laughs> no, I yeah. I I wanted actually the movie. Sometimes I'll be watching a movie and I I say movie go to that other direction. I wanted to follow that piano player. I wanted yeah, to find thing, out about his his <laughs> dreams and ambitions. Mm. One thing about this first half hour of the movie is for a comedy, it's pretty light on laughs. So they kind of inter- interject some 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 humorous bits, which is in in this particular scene is 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 Bob Hoskins playing piano yes. and complaining that it's an etude instead of an interlude. The 12th etude! <laughs> it is the 12th and it is an etude. Yep. Yeah, this is, it's funny you say that because that's like he's kind of my least favorite part of the movie because oh, it's no! so... Oh no! Well, now we're beginning to, I think, really oh, get no. to the root of our, of our, our rivalry and hatred. <laughs> yeah, <just>. well, <laughs> another reason for avoiding comedies is I think they're so specific to to taste mm. in a way that sometimes dramas are not because you know comedy is super subjective so yeah the true. uh the the, the quote-unquote jokes like the the in-your-face wacky stuff is not 
not my thing. I like I that that scene is one of my favorite scenes because of the nonverbal communication that she has with uh, John Barrymore's character. Like Mm -hmm. she's, you know, sitting down and she's like, I know a woman didn't write this movie, but my God, Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett, like they they got some things right because she takes off her shoes first thing when she gets in there. And if you've been wearing the same shoes since Paris and like wandering around in the rain, like, yeah, absolutely. That's the thing that you're going to want to do. And the way that he just like looks down at her shoes and looks up at her and she looks at him and it's just it's this wonderful bit of completely there are a a number of places where there's just no dialogue in this movie but the actors are doing amazing yeoman's work with just their their expressions and you're like is is he just amused or is he like creeping on her and and they 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 continue that throughout i mean john barrymore is just absolutely great in this he's by far my favorite part of this movie absolutely And and it starts with this extended sequence of must go for about two minutes when she's at Stephanie's dreadful party, and he's just—it's just facial expressions of him being either amused or aroused. You're not sure which for a while, and it's—it's—it's it's, it's fantastic. It's, I, I agree that the the piano player is a little broad, and this I think is a nice counterpoint to it because it's hysterical without being in your face. And you think she's trying to she's trying to leave because John Barrymore is 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 on to her and they've discovered that somebody got into the party with a with a pawn ticket. She's trying to sneak out. And like Jason said, she gets she gets caught, you think, but it's not it's not that. No, that instead she gets... she's she's brought into a bridge game where she meets some people. And it's John Barrymore who who is oh by the way, this is the most American Paris you'll ever see. <laughs> <laughs> American slash British. Like yeah. they all have American and British accents. But, but like literally even the cab drivers are like, hey lady, cab here from Paris. <laughs> I'm Hungarian. <laughs> yep. Uh but anyway, they're, they're gonna play the bridge, and the bridge it, it's uh it's so it's John Barrymore's wife and mm-hmm. Jacques Picot, who is uh, a cad, and it then and then the uh and then the the married couple, right? No, it's no. The, the, it's Marcel, her gay best friend, the wife's right. gay best friend. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yep. And his name is Mr. Renard, which means Fox. Fox, so totally. It's so good. I, I, I enjoy Marcel. Who, no, I love, I love has, the Marcel character, too. His character but, has exactly two traits. He likes to eat and he likes to stir stuff up. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> nope. I, I guess Noel Coward wasn't available to it play was, this part. It's so a they necessary function of this film. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is, yes, and, and so... Then this actually the movie that this movie reminded me of a lot is uh, is After Hours, the Martin Scorsese movie, because it's a similar story of like one ridiculous thing happens after another and they continue to compound. And this person is just kind of, you know, because she so Claudette Colbert is Eve Peabody, but she's going as uh, as uh, Cherney because that's the name of the cab driver she met earlier. And there's a Baron Cherny, who is a distant relative, it turns out, of the cab driver in Hungary. And they ask if she's the Baroness. So she says, yes, of course. And uh, because she can't admit that she's the Eve Peabody who they found the ticket and they know that somebody has snuck into this party. And you end up with this series of events. So she meets all these people and then she's and then she goes to leave. And that's where it gets amazing because they're like, no, no, no. We will take you to your hotel. And she's like, uh, uh, why don't you guess what hotel it is? Oh, you got it in one, the Ritz. And then it's like, let me take you to your room. She's like, no, that's fine. I'll just go in because she's because she doesn't have a room. And then when they go in, it's like, oh, Baroness, yes, your rooms are available. And she's like, what is going on? And the answer is that John Barrymore, who excuses himself 
uh, as she's leaving him a cab to go back inside the uh, building because he's going to call ahead and and talk to the Ritz Hotel has has set this up because he has a plan where he wants her to be Baroness Cherney because his wife is having an affair with Jacques Pico and uh, and yet he was also attracted to Eve. So he wants to set up Eve as, as a distraction to Jacques Pico, hoping that will then, uh, you know, break his wife out of her, uh, interest in Jacques Pico and he can win her back. And, and so therefore, uh, John Barrymore helps Eve Peabody build up the, uh, increasingly ridiculously fake life of, uh, the Baroness Cherney. And that's, uh, that's, that's a whole big part of the movie. And, uh, you know, I just kept laughing, laughing at every turn. It's great when she keeps her lies keep coming true and she doesn't really understand. And she starts to think that she may be going crazy. I loved it. That's my that's my other favorite. Like the whole section between when she gets into Stephanie's dull party and, you know, the figures everything out in the hotel, like when she's wandering into the room being like, oh, I'm so sorry. Why why aren't you speaking? And she turns on the light and it's it's a mirror. And she's like, OK, the room's empty. So she goes to sleep and then she wakes up the next morning and they're wheeling in her luggage. And like, I want old timey luggage like this. There are little hangers inside and there's a whole rack that comes out of this giant trunk. Yeah, doesn't oh. the trunk even have like a fancy? C engraved on it, so he's like, you even <laughs> got that part. That. Wow! I see. I need to just watch nope, this again. Watch it again. Yeah, but she's just she's like, what the heck is going on? The and best part of that sequence is when she goes onto the balcony and has to remind herself uh, uh, <laughs> that she is in fact Eve, and she says, "What's your age?" It just says, "None of your business." Mind your own business. Great. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so good. Um, and then when you get when you get uh, John Barrymore coming in and explaining things, like Steve said, you still think, you know, she's like, the moment I saw you, I had an idea, you had an idea. And it turns out to not really be that. But uh, she's totally ready to just be like, no way, shove off, dude. And he talks her into it because it's, you know, she, she wants to jump in. a lot in, else going on. She yeah. wants to jump into a tub of butter. <laughs> That's the deal. Yeah, Claudette Colbert plays this to a T, too. I mean, she, she's got her snappy American patter down pat. Mm-hmm. Well, this was that that is what Claudette Colbert did. She's great in um, It Happened One Night, uh, basically playing the person who just talks herself into one situation after another. And that is that is her career. Hey, Tiff, how's it going? Hey, <laughs> what do you I'm think here. about this part? No, I um I really enjoyed the movie right away. It totally grabbed my attention. It's right up my alley what I like to see in a movie. I love old-timey movies where everyone's just kind of the the silent acting, the the visual acting between each other where everyone kind of feels like they're creepy, but you're not sure just like everyone was saying. And uh yeah, the relationships really turn like it was much more interesting i haven't seen this kind of group of characters in such an early movie i feel like before like a lot of the other older movies that i've seen they didn't have quite this kind of i don't know it felt like a modern dynamic between everybody Mm -hmm. more than a typical old movie would have had uh so it was it that kind of made it it made it feel more current than it could have does that make sense yeah one weird effect of the way that the movies worked in the mid part of the 20th century with the with the code and all of that is that sometimes older movies feel more modern than kind of mid-century movies because the older movies have more um suggestive stuff and are and are a little less 
um, you know, we have to be good. We, you know, this is for all audiences kind of thing. And, and, uh, this definitely feels a little bit more in that vein where it, it it's a little bit wilder. Um, not, not Billy Wilder, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, no, 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 Steve, those, those, those sound effects are in some like it hot. <laughs> They're also at the very end of this. Oh yeah. I suppose we'll so. get to that. I suppose we'll right. get to that. So, um, but yeah, they have like they have they have moments of being, you know, so much more body. It feels like it's yeah. for uh, adults and not like families. It's uh, mm-hmm. you know they're able to make these jokes. The women feel modern and sassy and independent. And I feel like a lot of times in mid-century movies, you don't get a ton of that. You know, everyone's kind of restricted and buttoned up, and uh, women don't seem to have the privilege of oh, I'm just going to get in a taxi and I'm going to go find a job and I'm going to be you know, kind of a grifter and no one's going to really question me. Um, I really, I like that about it. I, I find it funny how quickly everyone falls in love with each other. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, hey, yeah. I, you were in my taxi for two hours and you ran away from me, but yet we are in love. <laughs> like, they got but, a lot of plot to cram in. So they yeah. got to do some <laughs> shorthand on some of this. Yep. Yep, exactly. We, we, we haven't really gotten into while all this is going on. Um, Don Amici yep. is organizing the cab drivers of Paris to go hunt for his Lady yeah, love. that comes out this, of nowhere. This I, army of cab drivers who just this movie like, took a turn. <laughs> yeah, he takes in five francs a piece for the cab drivers to be part of this pool to go out and look for Claudette Colbert, and at some point it's up to eight thousand francs, which means he somehow recruited sixteen hundred cabbies. Yes, all the which cabbies, maybe more than the total in, amount in Paris. In Paris, are looking for her. Um, and she she ends up at Versailles for a house party because there's going to be some wacky stuff going on there. Don't skip the hat scene, though, please, because that is that is that Don't. is sort of like the end of my my happy place in this movie. I mean, I love the whole thing, but like that's the best part from the party to the hat shopping, because one of the things that I love about movies from the 30s and the 40s is the ladies hats. And many <laughs> movies back then had scenes where they would go to a store for hats like they would go hat shopping in the movies and i just always as a young person thought this was amazing because i feel like hats just need to come back so the fact that that they have a scene in a hat store made me super happy and then also the fact that she is completely playing this right against uh john barrymore's wife who is there buying a hat and she's just so delightfully mean she's like oh that hat does it, it's great it does something for your face it gives you a chin it gives you a chin just, sounds so <laughs> I already have a chin. (laughs) I was scratching my head early on trying to figure out where I'd seen Helen before, which is the the John Barrymore. That's Mary Astor. I I looked it up and realized that she was she was the not very good femme fatale from the Maltese Falcon. Yeah, exactly. She's much better in this. I I think she's she's quite good. She's great in this. She has quite a bit of pathos about the 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 Lothario kind of bailing on her and. She's, yep. She seems like a very real character, even though she's in a very unreal movie. Mm-hmm. And Erica, the um, the hat scene is also important because earlier we get the the joke that I really liked, which is that she says, oh, I forgot my hat and goes back because she's been holding that one newspaper over her head for the whole <laughs> yeah. first part of the movie as the rain is coming down. Um, and so that was her hat because a, a lady has to have a hat. And then they finally go, they do go hat shopping. And then she buys one that has like golf balls on the top of it. And she doesn't even try it on. And the woman selling the hats is like, oh, my goodness, a woman <laughs> buying a hat without trying it on like she's about to faint. I'm like, you yeah. inhuman monster. Let's take a short break for our sponsor. This episode is brought to you in part by ExpressVPN. There are so many different VPN providers out there. You've probably heard of many of them. I use ExpressVPN. And let me tell you. They're really good. 
Uh, they don't log your data. Other VPNs can make money by selling your data to ad companies. ExpressVPN developed a technology called Trusted Server that makes it impossible for their servers to log any of your info. Second, speed. Many VPNs slow down your connection or make your device sluggish. I've been using ExpressVPN for quite a while now, and when I use it, my internet speeds are solid. They are solid. You don't even notice that you're on a VPN and maybe even in another country. Uh, I can still stream HD video with zero lag. Uh, The last thing that really sets ExpressVPN apart from other VPNs is how easy it is to use. Uh, no complicated stuff. Literally, you uh, t- fire up the app and tap a button, and uh, that's it. It's super easy. And it's not just me uh, reading this in an ad. Wired, The Verge, CNET, many other tech experts rate ExpressVPN tops, number one VPN in the world. So protect yourself with the VPN that I use for all sorts of different things, and uh, it's never let me down. Go to expressvpn.com slash Snell today. Get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash Snell, my last name. Go there now. Check it out. Visit expressvpn.com slash Snell to learn more. Thank you, ExpressVPN, for supporting The Incomparable. So we get the uh, the, the house party happens. And again, so she's there with all the rich people in France. It's France. Trust me, it's France. The American accents, it's France. It really is France. Yes. And we learn in this scene that uh, even 80 years ago, horrible people made everybody do a conga line whenever the conga comes on. (laughs) (laughs) Headhopper was genuinely excited about that conga The conga? Oh, come on, everybody. Do the conga. And they do the conga. They do. They don't have to control themselves any longer, Steve. <laughs> Didn't know I was making that reference tonight. Um, the the so this scene so there's you know there's a lot of comedy in this that is her. I mean, there's a lot of Claude Colbert as Eve, um, just making things up, <laughs> and it's delightful because it's like she starts making things up to survive, and then in comes John Barrymore, and he's like, yes, yes, continue to make things up, and she's like, all <laughs> I right, make- I can do that. Uh, he's which, the fairy godfather. Yeah, which is great, but the moment. The amazing moment is the cab driver. The cab driver comes to Versailles because they, she's been spotted. Yes, and and he comes to Versailles and by the starts, strange, mysterious. I don't know what ethnicity other cab driver that finds her yeah. and announces, "I am a rich man." <laughs> All right. Yes. Well, he won the pot. He he win, wins the whole thing. So he goes to Versailles, and first off, there's a good gag where the taxi pulls up, and the guy opens the back seat to let out whoever is in the uh, in the in the cab, uh, which is unusual enough. But the driver gets out of the front seat and says, uh, "Park it, buddy," uh, because it's the driver who's going. And you're like, "Oh man, it's all gonna come apart now. It's all gonna come apart." And uh, he he, but he has arrived. We should also mention this is just as the um, as uh, the the gay best friend uh, Marcel has uh, has g- taken the pawn ticket and gotten oh, the luggage. Yes. From from uh, Monaco, from Monaco, they're going to find so, out who this mysterious interloper is. Yeah, so Fake it's Baroness all Cherny. It, it's all going to fall apart, right? Is it going to be that uh, that John Barrymore's wife and her friend are going to expose her as a fraud because they're convinced that she's the one who was at the party, which she was, and is the fraud? Um, plus, then the cab driver comes, uh, and, and yet, in, in a delightful moment. Um, he instead is introduced as Baron Cherney. He's dressed in his suit. And suddenly the cab driver is part of this whole uh, scam, too. And there's a lot of, like, 
looks from characters to each other of like, are you in on this now? Oh, yes, I am in on this. What are you in on about this? And, you know, so between the two of them and then also John Barrymore, who's like, yes, yes, more lies, more (laughs) lies. And and meanwhile, uh, Mary Astor and her friend are like, ah, she must be real. Marcel is so disappointed. He was like, they were going to have such a lovely scandal and they don't. Let's not wait and let's not cover this up. (laughs) Oh, it's just, you know, uh, again, I just kept laughing throughout this whole movie because it is just like every moment that you think the bubble is going to burst, the bubble actually just gets much larger and there's just more lies and and more uh, turnabout. And it's very funny uh, because it just keeps on happening, um, leading to a moment where uh, there's a there's a dinner party. And uh, and, and so, OK, so we get the scene where uh, where our friend uh, Cherney, the cab driver, uh he is trying to profess basically his love. This is one of those shortcuts, his love for Eve. And, uh, you know, and, and she goes very quickly from, I'm reading it as she's not interested to at one point she says, Oh, but you know, we, we just can't, we just can't be together because it never works out for me. And it's like, well, wait, well, there's just a leap there. <laughs> like, well, wait well a I mean, she tells, <laughs> is that the point where she tells the story about yeah, her, uh, parents. her parents and right. how they didn't have money. So when you don't have money, love goes out the window. And so like she, the reason that she left his cab in the first place was because she was actually falling for him the way that mm. he was falling for her. And she yes, it's ridiculously fast. As you do. Yeah. Right. Yep. So, a, so I got a little whiplash she, there because it's like, no, mm-hmm. I actually am interested in you, but I'm not going to be. I'm like, oh, but oh, I'm not going to. Huh? What? I'm going to be interested in you, but I'm not going to do anything about it because right. this guy over here Has wants money. to give me an emerald the size of a baseball yeah. and you make 40 francs a day. Yeah, because you're. Uh, yeah. Well, that's yeah. your 1930, uh, 1930s pacing there. You got to. Yeah. Uh, Got to keep the plot moving. Got, got it moving along because yep. we've got another scene coming up, which is the scene where he's decided now in in the morning that he's angry at her and he's going to blow the whole thing because. Well, first she, he uh, wants to spirit her away. He yes. wants to spirit her out of Versailles and back to Paris, where once they're back in Paris, they can go and live in their uh, 40, 40 franc a day uh, love shack and, and it'll be great. Uh, so he pretends that their made-up daughter. Oh, did I not mention they had a made-up daughter? They've got a made-up daughter. Well, she has the yep. measles back in back in Budapest. So, uh, so you gotta leave, honey. And uh, Claudette Colbert, who is no no stranger to this fraudulent business, by now the lies <laughs> just come easy. Oh to man. Her. So she is all, well, let's call your mother back in Budapest and see how the baby is doing. And Don Amici says, what? No. <laughs> <laughs> and this leads to what is my favorite scene by far in the oh movie, which is John Barrymore on the other end of the fake phone call yes. to Budapest. Yes, uh, Mama. Talk- <laughs> the baby must have had one highball too many. <laughs> we picked her up in the gutter. And then, uh, yeah, she hands the phone over to Charity at one point, and, and it's supposed to be the daughter on the other end. And he says, hello, Dada. <laughs> <laughs> which just made me laugh my butt off. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they, again, she keeps, she's like, no, we're going to call. And, and, and like, he can't, he, cause again, this is this farcical situation where he can't lie now because he's already told the one lie. So now he has to believe he has to like go along with this next lie. 
And then finally you get to the point where it's very clear he's just going to blow the whole thing up and he's going to go, you know, change into his cab driver clothes and he's going to he's going to make one final play and he's going to just end end all the lies and then she'll have to go with him. And this is the just the stroke of brilliance where at this point she turns to everybody while he's gone and she says, "I have something terrible to tell you. My husband is insane and occasionally he has these spells where he pretends to be something like a fisherman or a cab driver or and having refi- a daughter." <laughs> and and but but and and the, the the line of the movie maybe is is he violent? Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so and when she me- oh. and she mentions like you know oh, yes, he sometimes throws things and and eats them. And so <laughs> and so when Don Amici does return for his big power move where he's going to reveal everything, everybody's just very quiet and polite to him, and he's like, "What's going on here?" And they're like, "No no no, it's fine." And- <laughs> Don't you understand? I'm a cab driver. Of course you are. Please sit down and have some food. Oh, man. Oh, it's so good because he's like, he is so confident that he's going to blow their minds and he has been outplayed. And he gets so mad that they actually have to like restrain him. And Mars, one of my favorite little moments is Marcel going to pick up a pan to like hit him over the head. Only he realizes one of the pan pans still has food in it, so he puts that one down and picks up an empty pan because you wouldn't want to waste the sausages on and then and then he they hit him over the head and it looks like he's got blood all plovers eggs, so the breakfast is ruined. But so he hits him over the head and then it looks like he's got blood all over his face. And they're like, no, I think that's sauce or something. It's just the gravy. It's just the gravy. Yeah, it's not. It's he's fine. Yeah. Yes, but this is what it's makes Claudette gravy. Colbert realize that she truly does love him mm. and his nose and the rest of him. <laughs> yep. Even though I, a young Don Amici kind of reminds me of Adam Goldberg when he was on Friends playing Chandler's creepy roommate. <laughs> <laughs> That's the closest analog I could come up with. There's another one that I that I cannot place, but I he's... In, I, interesting, I didn't get that, but when Jacques walked into the movie, I said, what is Kyle, Kyle McLaughlin doing in this picture? <laughs> <laughs> he oh wasn't God, very boring. much so. <laughs> yeah. Oh. But um, um yeah. uh, the, and then, the, I, I yeah. want to just back up for a second. The the one sure. scene where I thought, oh well, this this really doesn't play in 2020 is when Don Amici is just flustered to the point of of great anger and actually physically lunges for Claudette Colbert like he is going to throttle the I'll throttle the truth out of you and and that's when of course Marcel hits him with the pan and I thought I thought mm, this getting yeah. kind of getting kind of violent here <laughs> well she did say he was violent so yeah know. well that's true that's so, true it's all set I think up. she foresaw it <laughs> and and that leads to uh, another uh, set of scenes that you knew were coming which is now it's a court drama because in, in <laughs> did term, you know in terms of what I didn't know uh, no I thought that you no. gotta have a fake divorce when you have a fake wedding no it, it, it's the most bizarre logical leap that, in a movie I've seen in a long time where I'm like well, uh, okay I guess yeah, we're going to court why did they all have now. to go to court like they all had to go to, because, to because they were married except they weren't married they were fake married but they had to pretend that they were real married as some sort of a dare because in France they have very specific laws about, about divorce or at least they did in 1939 and, in this movie and, and, and in this movie and you know again the most I was, intricate it, divorce laws I have ever seen in any society <laughs> well, I was waiting frankly. for the, the, the mailman to come in with the bags of postage saying see this is addressed <laughs> to the husband so <laughs> he right. must be the husband calamity cry kitties yeah but this is but I mean this is for this is for Jacques' benefit because she's having been rejected by Don Amici when he woke up from being clocked. Uh, she has discovered that she's in love with him, but he has is having second thoughts and believes that she's, I don't know, 
Well, he when he wakes up, he he assumes that she got found out and says, oh, right. so now you want me because you got, you know, you got sure. a kick, in the, a swift kick and, and you got found out. And right. she's mad. She's like, no, he proposed to me. And Don Amici refuses to believe it. So she's like, fine, I will marry him if that's the way you want to play it. Yeah. And and he kind of just decides, sure, I will go along with it. I will give you this divorce. Although, as we find out later, he was never actually going along with it. Right. But yeah, it's this, the whole thing is because she has to, if she intends to actually marry Jacques, then she's got to be divorced. You know, the, the divorce right. has to look official. And so. they believe that they're married. So they have to get an official document. They have to basically gaslight the judge into d- d- allowing them to have a divorce that they don't actually have. And they're like, oh, uh, we've got the, they were married in Shanghai and the the, bu- the building burned down. So uh, all the records are gone. Yeah. Well, that's convenient. So what I like is that the, and the lawyer's like, um, uh, I would be disbarred if, if this, you know, if, if he finds out that this is a lie or whatever. And yet at the end, when this is all resolved and they're just walking off to get married, because that's how this movie ends, of course, the judge is there and he's like, what? And they're like, and then never mind, the movie's over. But that's okay because because the judge thinks, as we'll find out, the judge thinks that he is insane. So I, I feel like that lawyer yeah. is still probably safe. Okay. Yeah. I'm relieved. Anyway, <laughs> this movie is bananas, is what I'm yep. saying. And I enjoyed it. Yeah the whole thing because it is just an increasingly ratcheted up series like because you know yeah i expect like oh she tells a lie and now she must navigate her way out of it it's like no she tells a lie which leads to another lie somebody comes in and helps her lie adds some more lies then the other guy comes in and he joins the lie then they do counter lies against each other like it just mm-hmm. keeps going uh and it's great i this movie just piles all these things on top of each other that I like. The Cinderella story, the pretending to be somebody that you're not story, the helping somebody else pretend to be somebody they're not. And then I also love courtroom drama. So it comes to the end. <laughs> and then the way the way that it actually finishes up is Don Amici is like, yeah, sure, I'll give you this divorce. And apparently France has this rule that they have to be alone for 15 minutes to see if they can reconcile before mm, the divorce goes through. Seems and, super fake to me, but it's and, great. And Don Amici yeah, has it's done a very his... convenient law, actually, for <laughs> plot purposes. And he's done his research. It's a menace, and but it's the law. Basically manages to find a loophole that in France, apparently, if uh, if one of the partners is mentally unstable, you cannot divorce them ever. You're stuck with them for the rest of your life. So he pretends to be crazy and he starts shaving in the middle of the courtroom. And the judge is just like, well, you can never have a di- you can never have a divorce. This is a terrible miscarriage of justice that you've tried to, to place. And uh, and yeah, and then they're stuck together, which I mean, it's it's like this movie was perfectly made for me because legal loopholes and fancy dresses and hats and all of these things is just like it's just like Erica in Great Big Lights flashing. I want to say how much I, I love the uh, not the very end, but right before the very end, the parade of characters as they leave the courtroom. Mm. Um, you know, you've got uh, uh, Don Amici sort of waiting around the corner while uh, Claudette Colbert lets Jacques down gently. And as he's there, like the different various characters, who you've kind of come to like, uh, wander past him uh, as they leave the the courtroom. And so you get get, uh, John Barrymore and wife, you know, arm in arm leaving, and you're like, oh, they're going to be okay. It looks like their marriage is back together. And Marcel walks out, and he's amused. And Jacques walks out, and he's like, you know, oh, he's he's got to be sad. But then he kind of has this little like, oh well, that's the way the cookie crumbles. And he walks yep. out with kind she of a, a springy step. Oh. And I, I just I just love that it's such a nice, efficient shorthand to let us know how everyone's going to turn out. 
and it's I mean it almost reminds me of the the Miyazaki like the stills over the credits at the end of a Miyazaki <laughs> film where like oh everything's going to be okay you know we don't have time to really show you any of the stuff that's going to happen but trust us everything's cool <laughs> well I liked it Erica I I uh, I'm glad I liked it I thought it was really good I'm I'm relieved <laughs> so I have some thoughts yes please so I I I, I also liked it probably uh, not to the point uh, that. A lot of people on here did. It, it's very good. It's very good. It's a very funny movie, and I I enjoyed it from the uh, from the perspective of uh, seeing an early uh, Bracket and Wilder screenplay. Because at this point, you really see who was contributing what. Bracket was really doing the dialogue at this point. Wilder was really doing the storylines, and and that's how that their their partnership was working at that point. Also heavy Charles Brackett influences because he was very much a, a, a romantic, very much a, an upper crusty kind of guy. And uh, I think it was Tiffany who said that uh, this film felt, felt kind of modern. And, and I, I, I agree to a point. The point where I don't agree on that is because it, it's it's people, ha rich people having parties and the problem of rich people. And oh, <laughs> aren't we aren't we gay and rich and happy? And it, 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 if you've ever seen um, Hail Caesar, there's the... Um, the movie within a movie called Merrily We Dance, um, which is is clearly a parody of this kind of picture that uh, that uh, uh, the likes of George Cacor would do. Um, and I, I'm, all, I'm getting I'm getting Merrily We Dance kind of vibes from the credits of this movie where someone's going to come and ask Monty to sit by them by the duvet with them. And uh, and I'll pop to you and bridge. And then they started playing bridge. And I'm all, oh, God, the prophecy has come true. <laughs> but um <laughs> I, I, I liked it very much. Um, uh, well, it's and, 1939. And, yeah, I mean, and, well, you got to figure rich. that people in the in the throes of the Depression, the wanna idea see, of want to see rich people. Yes, right. yeah. I mean, this, this is sort of the flip side of gold diggers of 1930. Whatever exactly. Year well, the, the, that to me, uh, again, you have the m bits of modern stuff because they weren't as uh, tied up to the Hayes Code as uh, as latter films would be, but. Uh, there, there was still an element of um, that that didn't quite hold up with me with the um, the uh, upper crusty. If you were going to do that today, you definitely have to uh, um, uh, rejigger that point. Yeah, you know what? If, I think if I had seen this movie for the first time now, that probably would have also bugged me. I think the fact that I saw it when I was so much younger and oh, hadn't sure. really thought about class issues, I probably didn't sure. care as no, much. Absolutely. Also, the fact that it's from this era, it's much more removed. It, yeah, if somebody made a scene, scenes like that today, I would be like, what are you doing? And and obviously, it's a fairy tale because they call it midnight for heaven's sake, Phil. Yes. It, it took me an embarrassingly tale. long time to, to twig to yeah, that. The, li the line is specifically like, well, you know, midnight does. Every Cinderella has her yeah, midnight. Comes yeah. from Cinderella. Yeah, exactly yes, right. I still didn't get it the first like five uh. times I saw this. <laughs> I'm, I'm thick. Yeah, because she's just waiting for it. In. And that's the thing. The reason I didn't have any problem with it being about all these rich people is like, it's about like a... Uh, uh, a con woman kind of conning her way into the swells. So that makes it different for me. And the sure. fact that then it's and a cab driver, right? Like it's not just about the problems of rich people. It's, it's actually, I would say a more modern take might be that, that the, uh, that the, uh, the rich guy who intercedes is maybe a little more sinister than he is. Cause he, he's actually just kind of, you know, he's self-interested, but that's a hilarious fun part. Well, he's the fairy godmother. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Exactly yeah. right. You know, for but for his own good. But like our main characters aren't aren't uh, you know sad rich people. It's a lady without a without a penny to her name, just a fabulous gold dress, and she makes it work. 
I also like that they're the group that kind of left the snooty party. You know, they're the they're the rich rebels, yeah. right? They're like yeah. off playing bridge in the back room because they don't want to listen to the boring music. So I kind they, of already they, they that also set found me that up p- for like liking like the them pianist right. to yeah. be over the top and oh, this is this is far too in our face. Let's leave. <laughs> we want some more subtle comedy. Let's go yeah. play some bridge. <laughs> yeah, they're like the cool kids smoking out under the bleachers. That's yeah. what they're doing. They're playing bridge behind the the pianist. Yeah. <laughs> The other, the other thing I'm really interested in, because it, it's a good movie and it's a lot better than a lot better known movies of that era. So I'm wondering why this this fell off the uh, yeah. the, the, the radar and the public consciousness, and and why um, it it becomes one of those hidden gems that uh, Robert Osborne just got a kick out of saying, "Hey, here's a movie you probably haven't seen, and it's really good." So, because uh, <laughs> one of my favorites, another one of his uh, uh, hidden gems is The Tall Target. And he, he he was like, hey, you probably haven't seen this. And I said, hey, you're right. I talked to my TV. And um, mm-hmm. and it's it's good. Yeah, uh, it's it's just I, that's that was my res- response to this is why was this movie not? Why is this movie not available widely? Why is this movie not? Better known, I mean, yeah. It is. Mm-hmm. It yeah. is in the National Film Registry, so it's not as if it isn't like as it's unknown. But like in the in the consciousness, not even like the popular consciousness, but like the consciousness of old movies or old comedies, nobody mentions this movie. And it's funny because I I really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed any old movie that we've watched. Certainly any movie from the '30s, right? Like, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That so, was when they were still learning how to make movies, for heaven's sake. Right. and Because I was flipping through, uh, you know, a quick Bracket and Wilder article, and this movie is, well, this one was the one that they made, and they got to keep working in Hollywood. But it, they later got greater fame for doing Ninochka. Hmm. Okay, I kind of prefer this to Ninochka. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's take another break for our second sponsor this week. It's uh, Pingdom from SolarWinds. Today's internet users expect a fast web experience, and no matter how good your content is or how effective your marketing, they will bounce. They will be gone from your website if it's too slow. But you can use real user monitoring from Pingdom to discover how your website performance affects your visitors' experience. So you can take action and speed things up before your business gets impacted. How your visitors experience your website differs based on browser, device, and platform. You want to identify how visitors are experiencing your website across the spectrum so you can make informed optimizations and deliver a great performance to everybody, but especially to the most important users of whatever your site is doing. Real user monitoring is an event-based solution. It's built for scalability. You can monitor millions of page views without compromising the fidelity of your historical data or breaking the bank. Get live visitor insights today with real user monitoring from Pingdom. Just go to pingdom.com slash Snell right now for a 14-day free trial with no credit card required. P-I-N-G-D-O-M dot com slash Snell. And when you sign up, Use the code Snell. Again, it's my last name. You're going to remember that, right? At checkout, use that code, my name. You'll get 30% off your first invoice, which is awesome. Thank you to Pingdom from SolarWinds for supporting The Incomparable. Well, should we move on to the famous movie? 20 years into the future. That's, let's move into the future. Eisenhower is the president. And yet oh, we're no. moving... Uh, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And But and yet we're moving into <laughs> the past because this movie is set in the 19, the roaring 20s fellas yes. and ladies uh during the jazz age 
It's Chicago, 1929. Elliot Ness and his band of untouchables have not been formed yet. But prohibition is the law of the <laughs> land, and that's allowed gangsters to make their trades selling bootleg booze and speakeasies. And in Chicago, or at least the fictional Chicago of this movie, no bootlegger is, is better known than Spats Columbo, uh, played by George <laughs> Raft. Who, Such a good name. Who in real Why life... Why do they call him Spats, I wonder? No, well... <laughs> It couldn't be those spats that he's constantly wearing and gets very angry when someone uh, spills booze on them. They drag that guy out of the club. Nah, that's not it. Right away. Nah, it was probably mm-hmm. it was probably a family nickname. <laughs> he so, probably had some sort of a, a, a spat with somebody yeah, yes, at some point. Famous for his arguments. So played by George Raft, uh, childhood friend of Bugsy Siegel. Uh, so we're, we, we, we get to see Spats Columbo's operation, which is a funeral parlor that is actually a speakeasy and playing in the band at the speakeasy are our two heroes, Tony Curtis, the slimy saxophone player and Jack Lemon, his puppy dog, loyal, uh, bull fiddle player friend. And, uh, they, they are losers. They, they have not a cent to their name. They're constantly, uh, wheedling money out of people, uh, and, uh, and, uh, living paycheck to paycheck. And the, they're, they're going to get their big payoff tonight for, for working at, uh, Spats Columbo's club. But wouldn't you know it, this is also the night it's being raided. Uh, oh, Toothpick shame. Charlie gave him up. Mm. Yes. To, to Pat O'Brien. And why do they call him that? <laughs> It's a family I think you know because of all the spats that he wears. Steve. <laughs> That's probably it. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. So, yeah, they they really didn't. Sp- you can tell at this time that um, that Billy Wilder and Charles Bra- Brackett had had their split because the names are not subtle in this movie. <laughs> the The funeral parlor parlor is owned by Mister Mozzarella. Mozzarella. Oh yeah. Sake. So so we, I watched this with my family, and um, uh-huh. my my son left the room after about half an hour, but my daughter watched the whole thing and loved it. My nineteen year old daughter. Um, but mm-hmm. during the when we when we went to Mozzarella's funeral party, suffice it to say that we took about two minutes to do the whole. Hey, it's a Mozzarella's funeral <laughs> parlor. Come on in, the Mozzarella and the pepperoni uh, mortician next door. Hey, come Used on. to be a pizza parlor, so we didn't have to change the yeah. whole sign when it. Yeah. Changed ownership. Yeah. Oh, yeah. mozzarella. And as we're talking about things that may or may not have held up well in, in these movies, <laughs> the, the Italians might have a beef with this film, I think. A little I feel I feel like beef. it's it's the yeah, I mean, I read this, so it's made in nineteen fifty nine, but it's set in the twenties. And I just read all of this as like leaning into the shorthand about mobs, about twenties mobster movies in Chicago, like gangster movies. Like it's just yeah. Just all the way in yeah, to like, bit. suffice it to say, you know what this part, because, you know, the mobsters only really serve to kick off the plot and to resolve the plot. Mm-hmm. And and so I just viewed it as as a broad replay of mobster tropes to get the plot where it needs to go. So, yeah, it's all it is mozzarella and it is spats and it is toothpick Charlie. And like all of that is is super uh, super broad because it's like shorthand. It's just like, yeah, you know, 20s mobsters. And yeah. like, yeah, I know. Great. I don't know. Coming from a family of New York Italians, they eat this stuff up. Like, they <laughs> love this stuff so hard. Forget they about do. it. Oh, they they can't. They love it. They, it's just the best, right? Like, it's everything. <laughs> so, yeah, I think... Um, I, I don't think it was uh, upsetting. It might be upsetting to, like, real Italians. Sorry, grandma and grandpa <laughs> like, <laughs> like, uh but yeah it um 
even though it was very, very, very stereotypical, I think that the audience that is watching this movie and it could, would continue to watch this movie would love this. Like, they'd absolutely love it. I, I noticed something about George Raft, who plays Spats, um, that so about like six, seven years later, uh, speaking of like gangster movie parodies, Star Trek did a gangster movie parody episode. <laughs> and one of the mob bosses in that, I never realized this until now because I went on IMDb and I'm like, oh my God, was George Raft in that Star Trek episode? He's not. But I will tell you this, the guy who's the mob boss in that Star Trek episode, he is, I can now say, just shamelessly doing a George Raft impression from Some Like It Hot. Like literally, literally, like I'm just going to be that guy. It's it, And I'm like, oh, this is, if not where this started, this has got to be where that guy got it. Because it's like, it's literally just a riff off of his his spats stuff in there. But it's great because, again, broad mobster characters. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you get you know what you're getting here. Absolutely. And, and they machine gun. I mean, what happens? They uh, they find yeah, they find Toothpick sli- Charlie and they machine gun him and his crew on on Valentine's Day because it's the Valentine's Day massacre, I guess. And machine gun or uh, uh, Toothpick Charlie has the... Uh, generosity to die with his toothpick still in his mouth so that spats can kick it out with his spats with his spats spats beat toothpick that's everybody mm-hmm. knows that and we should mention that who should be at the St. Valentine's Day massacre but Joe and Jerry Tony Curtis and Jack Lemon are hapless yep. musician friends because they uh, went to their they went to the various uh, musical agencies to beg for work since they're out of work now and got a lot of cold shoulders. They, they went to uh, Sig Polakoff's musical agency. Again, love the names. Um, <laughs> and, oh, well, the only job that they have is uh, they're looking for a saxophonist and a, a fiddle, a bull fiddle player to uh, be in an all ladies band. But sorry, fellas, you're not ladies. However, uh, you can do this uh, St. Valentine's Day dance in, in Champaign-Urbana. And they, they uh, Tony Curtis being a heel, wields, we, uh, tricks the uh, secretary who's sweet on him into giving her her car. That's why they're at uh, Toothpick Charlie's garage in time just to see bad this horrible timing. murder take place. So then they, have to, they, then they have to flee and they decide they're going to just, uh, they're just going to lie, say that they are girls for the all girls band dress mm-hmm. up as women and then get on that uh, train to florida so that they can flee the uh the the mobsters who are coming to kill them because they're a witness to the to the massacre and this is about and the 25 it. this is the 25 minute mark of a roughly two hour and two minute movie yep. and for me this is the point where they they say okay story set up now we go and then and this is where it <laughs> takes off for me um because the scene with them uh, trying walking or, or attempting to walk uh, uh, on a tra- on on a train platform in high heels for the first time, trying to escape killers, carrying their instruments, trying to look like ladies, but not really pulling off the job. Thank you for doing this in black and white, by the way, uh, uh, Billy Wilder. <laughs> what I love about their portrayal here, especially like when they're first in the clothes is and, and experiencing everything as women, I love that they aren't making fun of women. They are actually kind of empathizing with like what they go through all the time and like what they're wearing or how do they walk in this and how does this work? I I kind of really love that and that stood out to me in this film. We, 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 can, we can discuss this point now or later, but I think this is why this movie holds up, whereas more recent movies that uh, uh, do gender uh, uh, crossing don't as well, because the movie is is not 
oh, look at these guys wearing wearing women's dresses. That's kind of fruity, isn't it? And but instead, it's um, they really throughout the course of the movie begin to empath as much as people in 1959 can empathize with with the 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 situations that women face. They how do they walk in these things? Why are men always trying to pinch me? I I hate this. Yeah, and I, uh, I appreciated. That- that although i will say that the difference in nuance between this and a movie that owes a lot to some like it hot which is tootsie from the early mm, 80s sure 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 is in tootsie i feel like dustin hoffman's character really ends up being a lot of the same beats as this movie i i just as i was watching i was like oh yeah okay i see what's coming here because that's a movie i've seen a billion times um there there's a whole lot of empathy with the women here there's acknowledgement the film acknowledges that when you're a man and then you put on women's clothes you're treated completely differently and i like that about it that like this movie absolutely acknowledges that they are yeah he he goes in the elevator right and he gets pinched by the guy and all that and it's just like how do they walk in these things all those moments the the difference is at one point i think it's jack lemon is basically like wow being a woman is terrible i'm gonna go be a man again so I can do this to women. And I'm like, mm, I don't think that's yeah, the lesson that was the you part that was like, no, that, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that, that, that's early on in the, in the, yeah. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't quite get that. I don't, I don't, there's just, there's a little of that. And I'm like, I, I think that's the wrong lesson is that I want to be on the other side of it. Cause we got it good over there. Uh, I wonder but, if they know. had to like throw that line in to be like, Oh look, we still like yeah. being men. Am I, am right? right. Like guys? because they were getting like really into it. Right. They were like starting to make friends with all these women. They were like getting involved in the, the band and the crew yeah. and maybe some. and the engagement and, Jack Lemon finds like, love. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like the way that that relationship kind of um, no, comes but even about. throughout the fact that that yeah, there 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 are moments of of empathy, and I guess I appreciate that, but it doesn't make up for any of the rest of it as far as I'm concerned because for me like yeah you have Jack Lemon pretending to be a woman but he's doing it then to try to lure Marilyn Monroe into his train car so that he can I guess surprise her with the fact that he's actually a guy or something I mean if if he wasn't using it to his advantage to try to be lecherous and and peep on chicks all the, the through this whole train ride, like maybe I'd feel better about it, but it just but it, it, just but it doesn't work icky. out for him when he's trying to be <laughs> no, which, and creepy. you know, it, it works yeah, out, I guess, but it for... still makes me hate him as a character. <laughs> no, I, 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 I feel that, um. I feel that he is reacting like a lot of people would react if Marilyn Monroe suddenly showed up in your 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 train berth and wanted to hey let's have a drink yes let us do that thing that you have suggested yeah I, but the, I, his his innuendo about oh boy do I have a surprise for you I uh, was just like yeah uh, I I I. I I, I will confess that that is one of my favorite scenes of the movie because I, I, <laughs> I find it funny, damn it, because no. Jack Lemon Jack Lemon just throws his whole heart and soul into playing this this uh, creep, good-hearted creep, but creep nevertheless. That uh, uh, yeah, just and just the way that he his nervous laughter, which is the laughter oh. of a man who's gone insane. I have that in my notes as like, it's like fingernails on a chalkboard is my oh, least favorite yeah. thing about this like whole film. Oh, like oh, you're insane. I'm on the club. I like it. I think it's funny. Yeah. Well, again, yeah. what do you say about comedy being subjective? Yep. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's funny. Now, I will say that if, if you were to have uh, a film like this with a bunch of men dressed up in women's clothing in the 80s, it would be chock full of gay jokes. And I don't it think would, there was a absolutely. It would be bosom buddies, mm-hmm. I suppose, too, a little mm-hmm. bit. But 
the the closest you come to anything you know even referencing homosexuality is at the end when it seems like Jack Lemmon might have kind of fallen in love a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's never played as like a negative thing no, at all. No, no, I think that's actually one of the more remarkable things about this movie is that, yeah. and they do a light touch with it, right? Because they don't want to go down that path too far. But like Jack Lemmon, a night of uh, a night of dancing and uh, cha-chaing or whatever they're doing, uh, he's got the maracas. And uh, like he's into it now. He's just going to marry that guy, and, and and like has to be reminded that he can't actually do that because eventually uh, the dress is going to have to come off. And Tony Curtis keeps trying to explain it to him, and he's like, "I'm not really getting it," because he's super into it now. Um, that's that's that surprised me because I was like, "All right," like they they fully committed to this in a way that again they're they're walking I think lightly, but they're not walking away from it, which I thought was charming. And again, this we we mentioned that uh, Midnight is uh, eighty plus years old. This this movie is now uh, sixty plus years old, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, not not totally hateful, which I, I think that, I think is, so is good. There is, that, that's what worried me in going into it was like, oh, oh yeah. boy, there's like all this gender role stuff in this. This is going to be really painful, isn't it? And I was like, no, like the, I think there are things to dislike about it, um, but it didn't do that thing that I was afraid it would do. It would be like, oh, this is actually, you know, super sexist and super homophobic. And it's like, eh, it's not. It's got some issues, but those are not the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. There are, there's that scene where um, they're on the yacht together. And I really like how <laughs> as much like BSing is going on to convince, you know, the uh, sugar, Marilyn Monroe, to to like oh i am uh i need help i i have never loved a woman right all the all the stories and the lies and everything that are that's being laid out here <laughs> i do enjoy that like she's making up lies along with him to mm. to be more attractive also you mm-hmm. know like she's like saying she's a debutante and she's done all this other stuff and she's wealthy and and um she's just doing this everything for a lark it's it's kind of it puts them on the same level no. where you don't feel like he's no but listen you don't feel like he's such a predator because she's doing the same thing like she's he's punching to, down she's punching up that is not the same level to, at all but she's trying to like get with someone just for his money which is exactly what Claudette Colbert was doing in Midnight. And I right. didn't have a problem with that because she's punching up. She's not punching down. She's not trying to take advantage of somebody who is but she's taking advantage. Power. This guy's a loser dirtbag sax player. I'm not yeah, sure yeah, how yeah. much more down you can get from there. She doesn't she's like know essentially that. Lose, you know, like, she's using her sexuality to get like his money without <sighs> affection. They're Which are scumbags? Can we just agree right. on that? Yeah, yeah but that's I, what I, I mean. They're both on the same footing in scumbagginess. <laughs> I, I agree with both of you. Marilyn they Monroe each other. Is, is trying to be uh, trickery, trying to trick uh, uh, Tony Curtis. But uh, of the scenes that I really I think don't, you mean, that I don't like, no, in this I think movie, you mean Junior Shell Oil. Excuse me, yes, <laughs> Shell Oil Junior. Shell Oil Junior, as he as he as as he's credited mm-hmm. in IMDb. Uh, talking like Cary Grant. Oh, uh, daddy loved shells. That's why we named the company after it. Yeah, That was such um, a backfire for me because it just made me think, why am I not watching a Cary Grant movie? Well, sure. I, enjoy, I, I enjoyed it. I, I thought that was, I guess that, that accent is outlandish and everybody, even if you don't know anything about Cary Grant, you know that that's a Cary Grant accent. And I, it made me laugh because it's so not Tony Curtis that yes. when, when he drops into it, I'm like, what are you doing? You gotta, because again, in these movies about liars, 
the moment that you decide what your lie is going to be, you're like, did you think through that you now have to do that forever? Yeah. Did you think about that? And it's like, no, well, you're stuck with Cary Grant now. You're going to be Cary Grant from now on. That's it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so like from early on, it's so obvious that nobody in their right mind would ever be fooled by these two nasty looking mm, yeah. Yeah. You know, dudes that's in dresses. Part of the, that's part of the fantasy and, aspect of this movie is that everybody well, ac- accepts that they're women, which is hilarious, especially when one of them is upside down in a train right. car and they're like, no, it's, it all checks out. They're so sinewy. Although, to be fair, the, the girls in the band are really drunk at that point. So maybe well, yeah. not. I don't know. But but when they're on the beach, Jack Lemmon is wearing a swimsuit, for yes. heaven's sake. So <laughs> I'm not sure say, how that all works. And but... they say, boy, your shoulders are very broad. That's a joke, yes, that, well. that's a joke that I thought was going somewhere else because Jack Lemmon, again, swept up in the moment. is like, oh, I'm going to go. And Tony Curtis is like, you're going to go to the beach in a swimsuit. He's like, yeah, I am. And I'm like, well, this is going to be funny because he's going to finally realize that he can't go. <laughs> no, next scene, he's at the beach in a swimsuit. I'm like okay i'm just gonna go with it just gonna go with it well the thing is because it's so obvious that it's just ridiculous right from the very get-go uh as soon as you see them in their 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 gowns yeah on the train platform uh, as soon as you see them you're like all right okay yeah i mean it's it's hard to get too worked up over anything that happens subsequently (laughs) because it's just so so farcical you know so i i agree there's definitely a fair amount of scumbagginess going around but i mean it's such a silly ridiculous movie that you know how how seriously can you really take it? Now, one thing I did want to mention is I, before I watched this, I had never actually seen a movie featuring Marilyn Monroe. <gasps> I mean, I've certainly, seen, <laughs> yeah. I've certainly seen clips of her. Same. Well, let me tell. Wait, let me let me lay it out for you. She's always looking for the millionaire. Yeah, like, I figured. Always. <laughs> my, Every my, time. my assumption, having only ever seen clips, was that basically she always just like walked through the scene and had like steam blow up her ass and then she moved <laughs> on. <laughs> and which does happen here, by the way, in this movie, true to form. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't realize that, you know, she she has a lot of dialogue in this movie. And I always sort of assumed that based on what I had seen, that I would hate her because she always seems so dumb. And so breathy and and ridiculously ditzy, and yet I have to say, having now watched this movie, I find her very charming in this. Yeah. Yes, she, she can be funny. She knows how to deliver a line, yeah, and she knows she how does. to deliver a joke, and she plays the character that she has. And I think that that is really great because she's not that character. And, and the way that it comes off to me is less like she's. I mean, she's she's very ditzy, but it's less like she's dumb as a, a bunny, and more mm-hmm. like she's just naive and and ideological and she has big dreams and she she doesn't really let you know reality get in her way steve let me uh, just let me just tell you steve if that's your impression of marilyn monroe from this movie you can watch um uh gentlemen prefer blondes and marilyn monroe made no other movies okay so and and (laughs) uh, how about how to marry a millionaire how to marry a millionaire yeah all right that's fair. So, Same especially character. when they sell all that furniture. Oh my god, so funny. There, there is no movie version of Bus Stop. Do not watch okay. that movie. I was reading the Roger Ebert uh, Great Movies review of Some Like It Hot, and I, I he had an interesting thing, which was to say there are famous stories about Billy Wilder being frustrated with her. And, yes. and, 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 you know, you get the sense that perhaps she was so famous and all of that, that like there was, there were attempts to take her down and, and, and degrade her in many ways. And what Ebert said is, you know, famously, you know, he was frustrated. Wilder was frustrated because there's that scene toward the end of the movie where she comes into the hotel room and she says, where's the bourbon? And she's looking in all the drawers because she's just been dumped and she wants the bottle of bourbon and she's going to take it away. And the, the famous story is that 
Billy Wilder not only had to put where's the bourbon on a piece of paper in a drawer, but then she opened the wrong drawer. So he had to put it in all the drawers. So she would have the line. And it's like, it's a funny story about this dumb actress who doesn't know what she's doing. And what Ebert points out is, but I defy you to watch that scene. She's brilliant in that scene. Oh so, yeah. She's so really good. I kind of feel like she, you know, people are getting sold a bill of goods about the talent of Marilyn Monroe. Um, Cause she's really funny in this. And I think does a very good job. And some of those, some of her line readings and some of the, the physical comedy kind of stuff she does, it's really good. And, and not what, I would have assumed either based on what I've kind of read or has seeped in to my knowledge, having not seen her in a movie before. One of my favorite lines that comes up when they're on the train is when he asks like, oh, do you play the market? And she's like, no, the ukulele. Oh, man. <laughs> I just love that. Uh, yep. <laughs> and it's just so quick and blank, but it's really well delivered. We find out previously that her dad was a train conductor and she's all, oh, yes. yes. My, yeah, that's my, good. Musical my, family. Yeah. My dad was a conductor. The Baltimore and, Sp- and uh, Pacific, right? Yeah. Oh, Philharmonic? No, the Baltimore and uh, Ohio. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> I, I will I will point out there's a there's another Billy Wilder quote, because years later they were asking him about this movie. And he said, yeah, um, my Aunt Minnie would have shown up on time and, and, and been fine to work with, but no one wants to see a movie with my Aunt Minnie. So mm-hmm. I, I, I think Billy Wilder got it. I mean, he, he was very frustrated by her and never wanted to work with her again. But I, I think he he knew that she delivered the goods in this. Yep. Can we talk about the goods? Because those dresses she was wearing, mm. oh boy, yeah. her performance dresses. Like, yeah. like Jello on Springs, I think is so, the line. Right? <laughs> so, so much like that. Those very, very revealing dresses. Mm-hmm. That's why they got the credit. Uh, it, it's funny. We mentioned earlier right. that the, the, the Hayes Code. Yeah, credit. Um, yep. yeah, this, this, this movie demolished the Hayes Code, right? It was released without the code. This movie is the one that is credited. Uh, the, the Hayes Code does not apply anymore. Yeah, yeah cross-dressing and, and uh, Marilyn Monroe's sexy outfits and... Because yep. I was trying to figure out how this passed, because you can more or less see her boobs in both of those gowns. And they didn't care. It was, it was weakening, and this was the movie that just took the pillow to it and said... Finish him? <laughs> yep. Shh, 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 shh. Really. Well, actually, you know, you know, the thing that made me laugh, because, so yeah, the, the, her clothes are so revealing. Um, I really uh, was amused by the fact that in, in her last musical number, she is in this tight spotlight and it's right above her boobs. Yes. And I, I thought that was hilarious because it's like, it's, it's like shooting Elvis above the waist. It's like, yeah. you can't put the spotlight down there, guys. You, you just, you can't, the, the, you know, the, the sister, whatever her name is, who runs the band. She's like, no, no, no. Spotlight up. Sweet Sue. Spotlight up. You can't, you can't do that. You'll, they'll see right through. And that made me laugh because it's like every, we know where everybody is looking, right? And the spotlight will not go there. I, I just thought it was very funny. Little, little touch. Very funny. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, I, we've talked about many of the performers in this. We have not talked about Joey Brown, who portrays Osgood. Osgood. Oh, the, he's terrific. He's wonderful. Zowie. I love it. I love it. He, he was, he was, it will not shock you to know that he was uh, uh, big in the silent era. <laughs> because- yeah. Well, that's your sweet, truthful romance in yeah. this movie. Mm-hmm. Actually, is the 
is the ri- I mean, he pinches her in the elevator and does all sorts yeah, of terrible stuff. Yeah, it starts off pretty He's a creep, gross. but, uh, it, yeah, but he's it a creep ends up, with a rubber face. It's up kind of coming around again where he's like, you know, he's had all these different wives and the mother controls the money and all that stuff. But it ends up being like that and they go dancing and all that. It kind of being surprisingly, um, surprisingly sweet in a way, given what a bizarre relationship is going on right there. I, uh, I, I thought that that was kind of great. It reminded me that reminded me of the, what is it? Charles Durning and, uh, in Tootsie, right? Yes. Falls for, for Dustin Hoffman. It's that kind of like, you know, uh, yeah, it's sweet. And, and you're also sad because like he's super into her and, uh, uh, it's, it's not true. Uh, There's this is not a a chess game you can win, but oh uh, I don't know I don't know or maybe they can. Know. The laws in South America are very different about this sort of thing. So I mean they both seem a little down at the end, so I, they may be good for it. Nobody's perfect, okay. Nobody's yeah. perfect is the final line, right? So yeah, to wrap to to wrap up the plot point of the movie, um, after the um uh my second favorite scene, which is the tangoing with um. Uh, Jack Lemon and uh, and uh, Joey Brown. You see him slowly become more pleased with the tangoing, which is great. Crosscut with all the lies on the boat. They've yes. they've they've driven a a dinghy backward to uh, to Osgood Fielding's boat. <laughs> That's such a good gag. The boat only goes backward. I I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, and that, but, and then, then but, but yes, we get the mobsters come. They come that's back. That's when because there's a con- there's a mobster, mobster convention, convention in Miami, as there so often is, yeah. um, and it's just it's at the same hotel they're at. Uh oh, and t- to me, this is the point, um, the one point where the movie becomes a little too antic for my taste because uh, uh, it's uh, it's Joe and Jerry trying to uh, avoid being spotted by the mobsters and and failing, and the mobsters going. Those girls look awfully familiar, and uh... well, we get a good chase scene in heels. Yeah, it's wonderful, and we don't, and we don't like. There's good stuff in there, but like, mm-hmm. I'm not sure we need the whole banquet where. No. They, where by well, the way, the, the uh, Spats and his friends are. We get, get our second mass machine gun murder. This is a guy <laughs> popping out of a cake who takes care of them while while uh, our our heroes are hiding, cowering under the table as the dead bodies fall back next to them. It's like. I don't know. I don't know. It's, but it's, then they're wanted. It, but then they're wanted as witnesses to another murder. Because uh, yeah, that the my least favorite character, Little Bonaparte's all get those guys. <laughs> I don't. I don't like him. No. Um, okay. So there's there's lots of uh, frantic running around, but and that's that's what leads us to um, them escaping on the boat, driven by uh, Joey Brown, yep, Marilyn forward. Monroe. Has now forward. realized that Tony Curtis is both Joe and Josephine. What? So they she goes with them, and they're 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 driving away. And uh, 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 Tony Curtis pledges to not be as much of a heel, and they they get to have their romance. And in the front of the boat is the greatest closing dialogue of any movie ever. <laughs> yes, Jack Lemon tries very various ways of, of uh, explaining Joey Brown why they can't be together, and Joey Brown says. I reject all of these things. Yes. I, I smoke. I, I smoke. I smoke all the time. I don't care. I've lived with a saxophone player for years. I forgive you. We can never have children. We'll adopt. And then and then the ultimate is, don't you understand? I'm a man. Well, nobody's perfect. And that's yeah, and that's your movie. Right. Oh, speaking of want wah, I just will say the uh the music where every time Marilyn Monroe appears on screen as if 
you need to be told that Marilyn Monroe is on screen because she's on screen. We noticed. Mm-hmm. The music is like... Bah, 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 bah. <laughs> <laughs> I have never been so annoyed at like the muted trumpets. The happen. trumpet, that, like, that guy's mute needs to be confiscated. Like, no, yes. no more trumpet. No. It's, it's so aggressive. It's just like, I get... Yes, well, you know what? Super aggressive and in your face kind of fits with this movie. It's like the movie is elbowing me, going, "Huh, huh, Marilyn Monroe, right? Huh, huh." And I'm like, "Yeah, basically this movie." I see yeah. Marilyn Monroe. Okay, I get it. I mean, this was one of her later movies, so I guess they were like really laying it thick that like this is a big deal. Well, it should be even less necessary then, though. Right. Right. We know. But maybe they're like, look, we have Marilyn Monroe in our movie. They thought they were were going to have to cast Mitzi Gaynor in that role. So they were very (laughs) excited. Mm. So since we're at the end of this movie, I guess now I might as well say that this didn't do a whole lot. Oh, how dare you. And it's it's not, I gotta say, it's not. Sad trombone man is playing for me now. (laughs) (laughs) But I I will say that that I don't think it's entirely the movie's fault. Um, That's right, you're to blame. That's right, it is me. It's not you. Um, Nobody's perfect. Yeah, no, it's it's just that uh, so much of the movie, so much of the comedy is predicated on, look, these tall doofy looking guys are dressed up as women isn't that hilarious and um you know having grown up on monty python and uh, dare i say bosom buddies, bosom buddies know, yeah. Yeah. sure like we've seen I, lots of other I've right. seen it a lot of Joanna times man yeah yeah we got it that alone isn't really enough to bring the laughs for me anymore okay well but think, so, this so was of, there and, before those no, no, and, and I totally understand why this is considered like a landmark and why it was at the time considered hysterically funny. It's just that to to a modern viewer who grew up on that stuff, it just, it's, it's it, there's not enough there for the main, what is supposed to be the comedic through line to, to, to make me that amused. Mm. Uh-huh. Um, but that is, that, that, that shouldn't take away from the fact that I, I thought it was a really fun movie. Um, it was just kind of an enjoyable romp. I just didn't think it was hysterically funny. Although, given, you know, in, in spite of that, there there are a lot of, um, you know, little character moments, little bit bit player moments that I think are great. And that's that's really what I latched on to is Osgood, of course, is, is fantastic. Um, I really enjoy the very drunk guy at the beginning that just wants another cup of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I love that guy. <laughs> Mozzarella's, yeah. And then, and then my <laughs> personal favorite. Coffee. My personal favorite is the horny little bellhop who somehow, oh my during, God. somehow during Prohibition, he has procured a bottle of gin as big as him. And, I was uh, more offended by his forwardness yes. than anybody else. Like, but he was such busting a into a woman's room without any kind of talk or can, like nothing whatsoever. I mean, you get the impression he's like 14. 14, yeah. He's right. like 14. He's so. a little 14 horny bellhop and he's like busting into people's rooms. Yeah. He's, a, he's a creep. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah he's, he's yeah. the biggest creep of this movie. Sure. Yeah, that's what, no uh, doubt. That's what a, a and 14 year old bellhop would do. I love him for it. <laughs> I watched this for movie for the first time because it had such a great reputation. I think I was probably like in college or something. And the first time I watched it, I think I just came out being kind of confused. Like, this is the movie that, that everybody likes. So I rewatched it again a few years later to be like, it can't be as bad as I remember. And I was like, oh, yeah, I still just 
it's just just don't nah. and then i watched it again for this podcast and i've come to the conclusion that i just detest this film mm. um, <laughs> it's i will say that like everybody in the movie the performances are all solid performances everybody's doing the thing that they're supposed to be doing for this movie and they're doing it well it's just super not my thing i th- the whole idea that uh that yeah look they're they're guys and they're dressed as women ho oh, ho that's funny i've just never found that funny at all and for all the few moments that you have of the you know empathy for having to wear high heels which sucks and getting pinched in elevators which sucks it's like i the hell the uh the high heels thing was like i uh, that was kind of cool because it's like yeah high heels suck i don't wear them on purpose but the being pinched in the elevator thing was just like no i've been there i've had to deal with that watching this is not funny for me at all and uh and also, the idea then throughout the rest of the movie, the idea that a man would be attracted to a masculine looking woman is consistently played for laughs. And I find that just really, really awful and insulting to a lot of women, um, except for Osgood, which that is also then played for laughs. And, you know, you get lines like, why would a guy want to marry a guy? And I just every time something like that happened, it was just and I realize it was 1959, but that it's not 1959 anymore. I'm mm. not a 1959 viewer, so that kind of stuff just I, I just I can't get past it. So this is not a movie I'm ever going to watch again, and no. I'm so glad. I'm thank you for watching it for this because I didn't think you <laughs> even would. You did watch it under protest, a little bit of protest. You know, I, yep. you know, I, I I liked your goddamn movie. I just want to point that out. <laughs> 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 Tiff, what do you think of this one? Uh, I love this movie. I've been watching this movie. I've seen it maybe ten times since I was like a young teenager. Um, I've just always really loved Marilyn Monroe movies, so it was a thing going through. I don't know, like old musicals with my mom, and then we watched a whole bunch of Marilyn movies. So it was like uh, this movie is kind of a comfort movie, I guess, or just like an old staple. Like I'm just so used to it; it's been mm-hmm. around and. The laughs that I have when I watch this are more about the comedy and the relationships on screen as opposed to what they like mean in the whole scheme of the world. And I I, I separate that because at the time I was young and it was it was different. Right. So I just uh, I just I really like this movie. <laughs> I don't know. I find it funny. I It makes me laugh. And I like the bits. And I guess I, I put it in the context of the time that it's in. And so it um it works well for me. Hey, There's nothing nice wrong with having a problematic fave. Tiff. And it's, don't and apologize. It's and it's you, you're with the AFI 100, Tiff. So don't don't feel bad okay, about it. No, okay. I'm going to wait. I, feel, I always feel like I have to apologize when I like problematic things. Tiffany, <laughs> thank you. Thank you, <laughs> okay. Tiffany. So I, before we throw it back to Phil for some, some wrap up here, I will just say I'm actually with Steve on this, which is mm. I liked it. I think there's a lot of good stuff in it. My daughter, who's, again, 19 and never seen any movie like this before, basically, really liked it. She thought it was hilarious. I thought it was good. I like Midnight better, mm. but I did like a lot of things in it. Um, I'm not sure. So basically, you know, it's. I feel positively about the movie, but if I were to need to watch one of these movies again in the next couple of months, it would absolutely be Midnight mm-hmm. and not some like it hot, even though, again, I don't think it's bad. I, I enjoyed it. But um, Midnight wins the comparison for me, I have to say. And uh, But Phil, you know, they're both good. Yeah. No, that's why It's not a contest. No, it's not a contest. <laughs> is between it? Between, between it Phil is. and Erica, I think it is. <laughs> oh, God. 
You know, Jason, that's why they make two different flavors of ice cream, because you like the ice cream. Yep. So, <laughs> so um, yeah. No, I, you know, I, I just think I really like the writing. I really like the uh, performances. It's it's a fun movie. I'm sorry. It is. It is. It is. Again, there's no need to apologize. No, well, I'm not. Well, he... I'm not apologizing to you. <laughs> <laughs> you apologized to Billy Wilder. What did he ever do to you? I think now, by the way, Billy Wilder is the most featured uh, a tour on uh, Old Movie Club because we've done like Ooh. if you and we if did you include... Sunset Boulevard and. Um... And we did Stalag seventeen. Stalag 17. And we've, oh, right. we've done this, and he wrote uh, wrote Midnight. And uh... wait, does this mean we just have to go through all of his stuff now? Yeah, have I th- we, I th- have th- we started I th- a thing? Th- this has become a Billy Wilder podcast. So okay. Ace in the right, Ace in the Hole and One Two Three here next. So yeah, Wilder with Wilder. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Old I did Wilder enjoy Club. the. Uh, I greatly enjoyed the uh, the cameo by the Hotel Del Coronado, which uh, yes. they're pretending is in Florida. Yes, they, but... yeah, they, they go to Florida, and I'm like, uh, that's San no. Diego, <laughs> <laughs> close enough to L.A. so yep. that they didn't have to pay lots of travel expenses. I, I I turned to I turned to my daughter and I said, I've been on that beach. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's mm, weird. Yeah, no, if you, if you ever visit the the lovely Hotel Del Coronado, there will be no mistake that this movie or this this uh, hotel was featured in some like it hot because it's on various signs throughout the property. Mm, I would uh, imagine. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I enjoy going up to um, Bodega Bay, which is featured in The Birds. The Birds. And, oh, they will not let you forget that for one block <laughs> of that. Every restaurant, every pier, every every corner that uh, that movie filmed on, there is a sign. There is a a statue of Alfred Hitchcock. And, and it, you're, you're all it's it's an OK movie. Yeah. It's not one of his best. On this corner, Tippi Hedren's eye was plucked out. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I would imagine that the Hotel Del Coronado makes a big deal of that. For sure. They'll also tell you how many presidents have stayed there. There's yeah, there's also the whole presidents thing, yep. but I think they're mostly huh. proud of some like it hot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, old movie club is in the books. I enjoyed old movie club. Funny uh, old movies. I think to answer the question, does the does the comedy from 1939 and 1959 still hold up in the in this case? I think mostly it does. It Honestly, does, yeah. I think mostly it does. I I, I, I was very I happy. Think so. These are these both. I found both of these movies very funny. Good job, Billy Wilder. Yeah. Good yeah, job. You've got a you've got a future in this business. Oh wait. You've got you a died future in the past. In, in yeah. the nineteen eighties. That's right. Oh, so sorry. All right. Get uh, in those yucks. I uh <laughs> I, I uh will uh, thank my panelists for being here for old movie club and watching old funny movies. Erica Ensign, thank you. It, I had to mix the sweet and the sour for you. So thank you for being here. <laughs> You know what, Jason? I say hosannas to the high heavens for throwing us all together. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, episode 400 is in the books at last. Gosh, we can finally check that box. Yep. Uh, Steve Lutz, speaking of checking the box, uh, thank you. Thank you, Jason. You know, that's the way I like them. Big and sassy. <laughs> <laughs> Tiff Arment, thank you. I'm Daphne. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> and Phil Michaels, thank you, as always. Hitting that sauce. I'll deal with you later. And thanks to everybody out there for listening to this episode of The Incomparable. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>